0: Uh, This meeting is sponsored by PEN and the Committee to Protect Journalists, and the subject is the killing of journalists, specifically the murder here in New York last March 11th of Manuel de Dios Unanwe. On his last evening alive, de Dios was waiting at the bar of the Maison Asturias restaurant in Queens, when a young man walked in and calmly fired two bullets into the back of his skull from a 9-millimeter pistol. This was the first time that a New York journalist had ever been murdered. It was, as most murders are these days, a two-day sensation. And then it drifted out of the consciousness of the city. After two months, that murder remains unsolved. That's why we're here tonight, so that his murder does not become still another grisly New York statistic. Manuel de Dios was born in Cuba, grew up in Puerto Rico, earned earned a bachelor's degree at the university there in Rio Piedras, came to New York, received a master's degree in criminal justice from John Jay College, and in 1976 went to work for El Diario. He became editor in 1984. He was, by all accounts, controversial, fearless, temperamental, impassioned. He obviously believed, as Jonathan Swift once wrote, that the best journalism flows from the point of the pen, not the feather. In that spirit, he went after all manner of foes, narcotraficantes from Medellin and Cali fanatical Cuban exiles, the nameless killers who set up the Cerro Maravilla ambush in Puerto Rico, and always reserved a good whiff of the grape now and then for Mayor Koch. He was forced to resign from El Diario in 1989, but continued working at his trade. He did a radio call-in show. He began publishing a crusading magazine called Cambio 21, and before his death, another called Kremen. <clears throat> I'm certain that nobody on this panel would say that the murder of a writer is more horrific than the killing of any other citizen. Clearly, it is not. But in this country, we have been mercifully free of the pattern of assassinating journalists that goes with the craft in so many other places. In this century, to my knowledge, Only four journalists have been murdered in the United States. That's not true in the rest of the world, as the latest report from the Committee to Protect Journalists shows. Last year in this world, 61 journalists were murdered. Five are still missing. 324 were detained by authorities, some of whom, uh, some of those were tortured. 156 were physically threatened. In these cases, the killers and the intimidators were frightened men, frightened of the truth, frightened of the word. If they win, if silence is enforced at gunpoint, everybody loses. We have gone through enough in this country over the past 50 years at the hands of our own league of frightened men. We can't allow them or anyone else now to reach for machine guns and think they can get away with it, not in order to get silence from writers of any kind. This case must be solved, and that's the reason why all of us are on this panel tonight. Our first speaker is Warren Hogue, who's assistant managing editor and editor of the New York Times magazine. Warren and, I worked for, Warren and I worked together for a long time at the New York Post. Regrettably, he went to the Times and <laughs> 1977, 1976, forgive me, uh, and was assigned to Latin America the following, two years later, where he became chief of the Rio de Janeiro Bureau. He became foreign editor in October of 1983. His experience in Latin America, I think, informs all of what might happen here if we're not cautious, careful, and absolutely angry about the sort of thing that happened to Manuel de Dios. I'd like Warren himself to bring whatever insight he can add to this question. Thank you.
1: Uh, thank you, Pete. Um, I'd like to apologize before telling you anything. I will walk off this stage with a bag and go to the back door. I've got to fly to Chicago tonight. I was supposed to fly earlier, but when I heard, what you were doing here. I wanted to come um, and do all that we can do in a case like this, which is to testify. Um, I, uh, as Pete said, spent five years in Latin America. Um, I've spent a lot of time since then because I married in Latin America. My children are from Latin America. I go back all the time. And something happens on those visits that, that informs this conversation tonight, which is uh, the extreme happiness I have when I re-encounter latin american colleagues when i go back to countries in latin america and i'm happy to re-encounter them because they are alive uh... because so many of them have died Uh, even tonight when i came here there was a woman named maria jimena duzan who was supposed to be here and when i looked up at the panel and saw her name was not listed i quickly sought out somebody from penn and said where is she and was relieved to find out that somebody had talked to her yesterday she worked for El Espectador in Bogota. It's a newspaper th- whose building has been bombed, whose editor has been assassinated. Uh, numbers of its reporters have been killed. It has been consistently the bravest of any newspaper, measured by the extent of the threat and what they've done. Uh, uh, while, uh, while other papers in Colombia have um, really suppressed coverage of, uh, of the drug wars, El Espectador has, uh, has pressed on, and Maria Jimena is one of the people um, who has done that heroic deed. Um, I um, thought I would tell you something about my experience in Central America, not to point out the dangers that, that, um, that we as North American journalists encounter, though we do, but to contrast it with what happens to Latin American journalists. Uh, a working day in a place like El Salvador began... Uh, by going around and seeing how many bodies had accumulated uh, from the night before. Uh, They were bodies uh, usually thrown into culverts. They were thrown in piles of four or five. They were often kids because in those days, the right wing was trying to deny uh, the guerrilla forces anybody who was young. Sometimes they were kids still in their school uniforms. Uh, The kinds of killing were killing uh, that were meant to send the most horrific kind of messages. Uh, they were uh, mutilated. Uh, very often the mutilated parts were sexual parts. Um, uh, it was a ghastly sight to see, and it uh, it uh, sent a very chilling message to those people that encountered it. Um, uh, a journalist, and from the moment I'm talking about North American journalists now working in El Salvador in those years, would often get phone calls of the following kind. Uh, somebody would call you up and recite where you'd been the day before, uh, quite specifically. At uh, 10.13, you went to see the defense minister so-and-so. 10.27, you crossed the street, went to this bodega, had a cafecito. uh 10.45, uh, you went on to some other appointment, and right on through the day. And then they would spin a chamber of a pistol in the earpiece and say, we have a bullet for you, go home. Um, it wasn't as heroic as it might sound uh, that all of us, and by, again, by us, I mean those of us that represented established newspapers from the United States stayed. We simply thought and we were right that even the craziest right-wing death squad leader would figure that it wouldn't get him very much to off a journalist from the New York Times or the Washington Post. A lot of journalists um, who were North American journalists died in that war and in other wars in Central America, but in every case, uh, it uh, it was not assassination. It was It was in combat. It was running over a mine on the border between Nicaragua and Honduras. It was in a firefight. When the Committee to Protect Journalists, a worthy group, came a couple of times to visit us in the various hotels that we would stay in, uh, in those cities in Central America, um, I used to say to them, um, I'm glad you're here, but we're not the ones who need the protection. Um, uh, We have the ad hoc committees, but there are no ad hoc committees protecting the hundred Salvadoran journalists who work for basically a rigged press, meaning a press whose own owners would not defend their right um, to survive um, having published a printed word which offended somebody. Uh, They were the ones that needed um, protection. Uh, Pete, uh, to bring it up to the current uh, day, was reading off the numbers from the Committee to Protect Journalists. Now, how many journalists were killed just in the past year. Remember, this is happening at a time when we're all celebrating the fact that freedom of the press is expanding. Uh, There are more countries now where there is, quote, freedom of the press than there were last year and the year before that. It is at that very moment that the numbers of of killings of journalists is increasing. Um, uh, A disturbing number of them uh, happen in Latin America. I have another list here, which I won't read from, but I can remember. Basically, it's the Overseas Press Club list. It it may be different from the Committee to Protect Journalists list by one or two people, but it's in the 60s or 70s, people killed, and um, high numbers in Latin America, Colombia, unfortunately, leading uh, the pack. Um, uh, What can we do about this? Uh, We can do what you're doing right now, which is to uh, gather uh, protest. Um, What we can do, those of us who work at newspapers, uh, is we can do the only thing we can do, which is to publish stories. Um, uh, A small thing that I hope will come out of this gathering tonight is before coming down, Well, let me just back up and remind you or, or recall one incident. There was a killing uh, that you'll remember because it got a lot of attention of a guy called Chico Mendes up in the Amazon in Brazil. He was a rubber trapper and he was in the head of a, uh, of, a, of a labor group there and he was assassinated the way thousands and thousands of people were assassinated uh, throughout that continent. Um, but a New York Times reporter named Marlee Simons went up there and wrote about it and it was on the front page of the New York Times it got tremendous amount of attention and the killer and the killer's son who had participated in the murder were arrested and are now in jail and it is, th- it is the most extraordinary, unusual uh, event to have happening in Brazil or most other countries uh, in Latin America right now where that sort of thing happens meaning that if we can call attention to these incidents uh, you know, maybe something good will come of them um, I never knew, I regret I never knew, never had the honor to know Manuel de Dios. Um, uh, his uh, assassination and the, uh, the investigation have not received as much attention in recent weeks or months as they should have. And uh, on the way down here tonight, I called the City Desk of the New York Times and I said, um, we ought to get back on the case and I'm going to go downtown and tell a group of people who probably read the New York Times and we'll will monitor whether we do our job or not. That um, that we ought to get back on the case and and start asking some tough questions, in the hopes that uh, maybe exposure uh, will um, will persuade the authorities to turn up the people that did this deed. Thank you.
0: Well said. Rosanna Rosado began her work in journalism at WNYC and at CBS, AM, and FM. She started working at El Diario in 1983, covering City Hall, and then was named by Manuel de Dios in 1987 to become Metropolitan Editor. That made her the first and only woman to hold a management position in the editorial side of that newspaper. She knew Manuel. We'd like to know more about him from her.
2: I'm here because I knew Manuel, and I worked with him, and I'm really sorry that uh, this is the first time I have really had to speak about him. Um, Since he died, it's been interesting that a lot of people who who knew me when I was at El Diario, uh, I was there for six years under Manuel. Um, And whenever we're really interested in what we were doing at El Diario, all of a sudden everybody wants to know, what was he like, you know, uh, what was he like to work for? Um, What was it that you were doing at El Diario? And you know, at times it's frustrating because if we did such a great job, Um, then people should know. But uh, a lot of what happens, unfortunately, in the Spanish language press in this city, and I think across the country, is just... um, totally ignored, misunderstood, misinterpreted, and, um, you know, but without getting into a session about that, I want to tell you about Manuel. Uh, I went to El Diario. I had worked, as Pete said, for, you know, done several entry-level jobs, uh, the desk assistant, the stuff that, you know, a young Puerto Rican out of college is supposed to. Do for 10 years before you get to do something important. And uh, I went to El Diario and I was hired as a reporter. But for a whole year, I was not allowed to work as a reporter because now here I was still a young Puerto Rican out of school at <laughs> a Spanish language paper where there was a, a, a very uh, male establishment. And so even though I was given the title of reporter and I was given the salary of reporter, which, I mean, after all out of school, (laughs) I had to pay loans and I was very happy. What they really had me doing was production. I was, I was, uh, because El Diario, uh, you have to understand, was a very old paper and there were people who had been there almost the 75 years the paper has existed. And uh, at the time when I was hired by El Diario, uh, I was, it was 1982 and Gannett Corporation had bought the paper in 81, I believe. And so they brought in a whole pagination system. Today pagination is very, you know is very common across the board, but at that time it was really an experiment. And of all the papers Genna had, they chose El Diario to make the transition to pagination. And what that is is basically a computerized layout uh, system. But nobody at El Diario wanted to learn the system or teach anybody else. And so um, well, yeah, I was the eager, you know, recently graduate. I can learn the system and teach people a little bit. I know how much resistance I would uh, I would meet. But long story short, for a year I was in that position, and I was in the, under the previous administration until Manuel was named editor. And um, there was a change in publisher at the time. And it was our, on, a, on a Sunday night in, in pagination about 10.30. You know, Manuel was commenting on how he he had just taken over the paper. And, um, you know, as a former reporter with the paper, had a, a very clear ideas about how he wanted to run this paper, um, how he wanted it. Very much to be a community paper, how disconnected it, it, it had become from the, from the community, from the people. It was supposed to be El Campeon de los Hispanos. And for Manuel, uh, what I find that, since his death and talking to people was so difficult to understand for, for for Anglos in general is that for Manuel, the, 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 the role of a journalist and the role of a community activist went hand in hand in terms of our community. And that's hard to understand. It is, and it's also the reason why. You know, when I went to interview with the Times, he's the whole left, right? When I went to interview, <laughs> <laughs> when I went to interview with the Times, even though I had been with El Diario for six years, two of them as metro editor, with 14 reporters, you know, who who reported to me, they were, they were talking entry level, you know, reporter training, because all of my work had been done in the Spanish language press. <laughs> anyway, luckily Manuel, you know, didn't think that way, and so when he was commenting about how he needed someone to cover the Bronx, and wow, I lived there, you know, and I said, well, I. I I could cover the Bronx, you know, and he said, but, you know, are you sure you want to, you know, chase fire engines and, and, you know, I mean, this is rough work, you know, in other words, he probably thought, you know, a man could do it better, and I said, no, no, I can do it. I know the Bronx. I know the people there. I know the area. I I have a new car, you know, it was a 71 Maverick. I was ready to go, and um, it took some, 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 about two hours of just talking back and forth. Finally, he said, well, let me see your resume, you know pulled it out. You know, I had, at least I had a journalism degree. And so he, you know, he said, well, you know, your Spanish is a little rough. And I said, well, you know, I'm willing to work on that. I just, you know, I just want to, I want to be this reporter. Well, um, much to the chagrin of the rest of the staff, (laughs) he, he threw me out to the streets of the Bronx and, you know, he, he gave me a chance. And, um, that began what was basically about a four-year period in which I covered uh, the Bronx, I covered City Hall. It was funny how I got to cover City Hall was that when I was covering Bronx I started to do politics which was you know what I really enjoyed doing and I started to cover Bronx politics and Manuel was really uh, uh, committed to beginning to cover our own elected officials and by our I mean Latino elected officials in a way which had never been done before at El Diario or anywhere else in the Spanish language media and that was to really hold them accountable and all of a sudden instead of just saying so and so you know uh, signed some legislation today you know we were we were up their noses we were in their office we were we were uh, asking questions and of course they were uncomfortable so one councilman who who is still in office and I won't mention here oh what the hell it was Castañera Colón <laughs> he, he went to he went to El Diario and he asked Manuel to please remove me from City Hall because, uh, to please remove me from the Bronx because, you know, I was, I was really, you know, really making life impossible for him there. Nobody liked me, et cetera, et cetera. And so Manuel, you know, who was not one to be intimidated, said, okay, I'm going to take her out of, out of the Bronx. And the next day I was covering City Hall. Uh, so,
3: here
2: <laughs> so yeah, I got to see Castaneda Colon a little more uh-huh. and the rest of them. And, um, I guess what what I want people to understand the most about about Manuel was that his commitment um, to to our community was unique, and that he he really went all out. And what's frustrating to me, and you'll hear more about Manuel and anecdotes. I mean, he was he was you know he was a pain in the ass to work for, but um, I learned a lot from him. And I think what what's important is that. He didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm gonna cover drug dealers. All of that came out of a long history as a reporter and as an editor, this, this commitment that he felt to the community and what he felt had been you know, major sellouts um, on the part of the, the, the so-called leadership and his commitment to, to the Latino community here where they lived in New York, and he felt it was really important for them to know, of course, what was happening back home, you know, as, as they were very much interested in. But it was even more important that they knew what the reality was here and, and, and be committed to life here. And so when he um, chose to, to, to do a campaign, whether it was to get a little kid, as we did, a little boy an apartment in public housing, or whether it was to, to get some uh, corrupt inspector fired from the Parks Department, you know, he went after it. He put his full weight and the weight of the paper behind it. And so people say he was impulsive, you know but we did some good things. Um, what's frustrating to me today is that so many people went, uh, came to El Diario, so many politicians, community leaders, you know, people with causes, um, to say, Manuel, we need. And um, very, f- you know, very few occasions, uh, there were very few occasions where we had to say, we can't. Manuel always said yes, and... Um, when he gave, you know, a yes, he, he was committed, whether that was to, you know, even to help some of our own get elected in positions where they hadn't been before. And um, as a journalist and, and, as, and as a citizen today, it is extremely frustrating that everyone who said, Manuel, I need, is not enraged that so much time has passed and that we don't have a clue who killed him. And um, that's why I'm here. I am not, I mean, I used to say I was his disciple, and he taught me how to curse. And uh, But I am not Manuel, and I know that I cannot, you know, hope to, to replace him in, in, in the exact work that he was doing in Queens. And as a journalist, how much can I influence my own newsroom <laughs> when I go upstairs and say, what's happening with the kids? Well, do you have any leads? Well, you know, it, it's it's very frustrating. And what I want to say is that um, I'm sorry for those of you who never got to know him. I wish you had so that you could reach your own opinion and not that that is put forth by um, all the different things that have been written by people who don't know him. But I, I believe that just by being here tonight, you're all special kind of people, and you're the kind of people that can put pressure not only on, on the police, on the media, at the community level, and that we should be enraged. Um, we cannot forget that Manuel was, and that he's not here because someone killed him, and that th- those people must be brought to, to justice. Thank you.
0: Magda Bogan is a writer, journalist, literary translator. Among her many works is the brilliant translation of Isabella Allende's House of the Spirits. Uh, she's very active in Penn, a member of the executive board, helped establish the Penn uh, Gregory Colavacos Award, which is the first major national prize for translation from Hispanic literature. She also, from 1984 to early 1987, was the editorialist and editorial page editor of El Diario. Please welcome Magda Bug.
4: We don't know who killed Manuel de Dios yet, but I think we know what killed him. In some form, fear of the word This is my first chance to publicly pay my respects to Manuel's memory, and I want to do so by talking about the kind of editorial I would have written about his death had I still been editorial writer at El Diario, where I worked directly with him for more than two years, during a period when he oversaw the transformation of the paper from the more local, insular um, paper that Rosana described to a paper that I think while remaining linguistically marginalized began to be more greatly respected and take a stand editorially on a whole range of issues and take those stands a lot more assertively um, than it had been able to do before. I think the most impressive thing that stands out to me about Manuel always did, though he was a very hard and often harsh taskmaster as everybody who worked with him can testify, was his never-ceasing sense of outrage. He was a man who was fired to do his work. The sense of risk was always palpable even before drugs overtook the city or did to the extent that they have now. Every offense, every deprivation, every degradation to members of the Hispanic community outraged him personally. And it's true what Rosanna said about his viewing journalism as activism. There really was no distinction. And I guess if I had to write an editorial about his death, it would be both to acknowledge the fact that the kind of violence against journalists we have become so used to that we may be almost inured to in Latin America has come home, but also to talk about Manuel's assassination as not so very exotic or so very different from the kinds of attacks on freedom of expression that we're witnessing in the same period. I don't think that they're completely separate phenomena. I think one is the case of a community that responds to a sense of threat with crude violence, and the other is the response of a community that considers itself the repository of civilization and laws and a Bill of Rights, which responds to perceived threats to power by assault on those fundamental rights and retrenchments in the name of staving off violence. And it may seem a bit of a leap, but I think that there's a rather terrifying continuum. And in fact, Manuel's death should not be seen as a strange visitation from abroad, which could only occur within the drug-plagued Hispanic community. On the contrary, I think it's telling us that all kinds of lines are being broken down in our own society, and the Hispanic press is not an alien phenomenon among us. And Manuel's death took place exactly during a time when the paper itself and Hispanics are becoming more and more a part of the fabric of our city and of our society. So I think the fact that this death is still unsolved, may or may not, I'm not up on all the ins and out of the investigation, represent laggardly police work, whether or not that's the case, it is a tremendous outrage to all of us, and we don't have Manuel here to write crusading articles demanding and demanding and insisting insisting that we get to the bottom of it. While I was on my way over here, I thought back to when Manuel first hired me, I guess it was the fall of 1984, and that was a risk for him also, I came banging on the door proposing all sorts of exotic features to be added to El Diario and was willing to write in Spanish happily about women's issues and books, things that I thought the paper hadn't adequately covered. And it was Manuel who said, fine, you can start on Monday. And I said, doing what? And he said, can you write English? And I said, of course. And he said, you'll write the editorials. And he took me, with my good intentions and my bilingual skills and threw me into a job that really became far more than I could have ever imagined. And I remember that he always kept one book in his office. You know that editors-in-chief are very busy and books come and go and mainly they just have, if they can hang on to it, a couple of dictionaries and a thesaurus. The other book in Manuel's office was a book he wrote and it was about the death of Galindes, a Dominican activist who was assassinated by Trujillo. Manuel wrote what I understand as the definitive story of how Galindez was killed, disappeared, and tortured to death. And his death was a mystery, and it was unsolved for a long time. And I hope that Manuel's death, however terrible it is, will not be a mystery and unsolved for a long time, and I hope that the book about it Will be written. Thank you. Uh,
0: Jose Torres uh, first was known around New York as a prize fighter, Olympic silver medal winner in 1956, uh, Golden Gloves champion, and then light heavyweight champion of the world. But his Other accomplishments uh, are considerable. He became the first Latino to write a newspaper column in a non-Hispanic newspaper at the New York Post, which he did for nine years. He's written two books. He's been published in everything from Parade to Penthouse, God help us. Um, uh, His most recent book was a biography of Mike Tyson. uh, And he also worked extensively over the years at El Diario La Prensa and other parts of Latin journalism, including El Mundo and the late El Mundo in San Juan, Puerto Rico, the San Juan Star, and other newspapers. Please welcome Jose Torres.
5: Uh, One of the things that I have to warn you about is uh, that you have to perk your ears because I am one of those uh, Puerto Ricans who have come here from from Puerto Rico for a long time and suffers from a condition called linguistic schizophrenia. (laughs) I I, I speak Spanish like Shakespeare and English like Cervantes, so you have to bear (laughs) with me. Uh, I, I knew Manuel de Dios when he first came here to work for the Puerto Rican government. At the time, I was representing the governor of Puerto Rico in the United States. And he came with uh, uh, a a Puerto Rican politician by the name of Marcos Rigao, whom today is uh, senator, and who is investigating the Sejo Maravilla case, which has to do with two young independentistas who were murdered by the police in Puerto Rico. And six months after Marco Gigao brought Manuel de Dios here, Marco Gigao had problems with the Secretary of Labor of Puerto Rico, and he was fired. And Manuel de Dios, lawyer to his, to his friend, quit. And that was when he began to Go to school here and to study. Uh, went to the to college to study uh, criminal investigation, and he became uh, a reporter. Uh, I was there the day in El Diario when Gannett bought the newspaper, and Manuel Bustelo became the chief of, uh, like the publisher of uh, of El Diario, and Manuel Bustelo was consulting with me as to who should be in charge of the, of the, of the paper, uh, the chief editor. And I was the one who suggested Manuel de Dios because I felt that Manuel de Dios was blunt, was tough, was sometimes reasonable, many times unreasonable, and, and very tough with authority. And I felt that El Diario needed some change, uh, different changes. And he went there, and he began to make those changes. We had a few fights. And the best way to describe him uh, was done a couple of years ago when one of his editors, Metropolitan Editor, uh, Evido uh, de la Cruz, uh, called me up at four o'clock in the morning and said to me, you don't know what happened to Manuel de Dios last night. His car was destroyed. He came this morning to the paper at 10 o'clock and he called the police to report the damage. And uh, the police made a mistake in asking him if he had any enemies. He says, it is four o'clock, and he's still talking to the police about his <laughs> his enemy list. That that will show you uh, how controversial Manuel de Dios was. He did not pull any punches. He was a fighter. He walked in. He didn't care about getting hit. He just went in there to throw punches and throw punches, and He would not take a step back that's why it's going to be very difficult it seems to me people who wants to find out what happened to him and you begin to figure out it is so tough because two weeks before he was killed he went to puerto rico to testify as to the planning and cover up of the cejo maravilla case and he testified in his testimony was devastating to many police in Puerto Rico. I gotta tell you a story about one time when I went with Pete Hamill to Puerto Rico. We were trying to uh, to cover uh, a murder of a of a jury person who went to Puerto Rico for business, and he was killed. And Mr. Hamill and I we went to Puerto Rico. and We went to the police headquarters. And we're trying to find out information as to the killing of this person. And uh, we, Hamid, began to ask questions, specific questions. And the police were, like, in awe of these questions. Yeah, we should have done that. Oh, yes, Mr. Hamid. Oh, Jesus. We didn't do this. Oh, we should have done that. (laughs) Of course, three or four years later, when the Saja Maravilla case came to light, it was discovered that the police had committed the murder, that it was those people who could not understand why Pete knew so much, and they knew so little because they were the ones who were doing the killings. And Manuel de Dios knew that, and Manuel de Dios spoke about that, about how police officers in uniform committed incredible crimes in Puerto Rico. and. One of them was of, uh, of uh, Yvonne Berrio, a writer, who was who was uh, brutalized by the police in Puerto Rico. Another case of Jessica, a woman who had, uh, who was under police protection, and the first day she went out, she was killed. And then we have the Sajo Maravilla case of which Manuel de Dios knew something about it. But what happened was that Manuel de Dios had also written a book about uh, Medellin, about the drug coming from Colombia. He had plans to publish a book about some of uh, the drug pusher from Santo Domingo. And he went to Puerto Rico two weeks before to talk about the Sejo Maravilla case and his experiences with the secretary of the police of Puerto Rico. And so it's it's gonna be very hard to find out what happened or who did what to Manuel de Dios. One, he knew too much about too many people, and he was very, very much informed as to those situations. He was controversial, he was a tough guy, and you know something, he, like, like Rosanna said, he was a great teacher, he was a great puncher, just to use a boxing metaphor, and I, I miss the guy. I, I just wish that we can bring this situation to justice. Thank you.
0: Vicky Sanchez was born in Bogota, Colombia. She's been in New York since 1983. She was a photojournalist uh, who worked for various magazines and was with Manuel de Dios for eight years before he was murdered. They had a daughter together, Melody, who's now two and a half years old. She worked with Manuel on all of his projects, his writing projects, including uh, the book Secrets of the Cartel and the magazines Cambio 21 and Cree Since the murder, she has brought out one edition of Cambio 21, and plans to release another issue very quickly. Please welcome Vicky Sanchez. During
6: seven years, <laughs> Tuve la suerte y el privilegio de compartir mi vida con Manuel de Dios Unan. Como padre, como esposo y como periodista, que era un gran periodista en todo el sentido de la palabra.
4: For seven years I had the luck and the privilege to share my life with Manuel de Dios Unan. Father, husband and journalist distinguished journalist in every sense of the word.
6: Manuela amó su profesión como periodista y murió ejerciéndola de la única manera que ella concebía, defendiendo la verdad y buscando esta verdad donde fuera que esta estuviera.
4: Manuel loved his profession as a journalist and he died doing that exercising his profession the only way he knew how to do it, that is, the only way he knew how to be a journalist, seeking the truth wherever it was to be found.
6: Murió defendiendo y luchando por una comunidad azotada por el flagelo de las drogas, olvidada por las autoridades y por nuestros medios de comunicación.
4: He died fighting for a community that was being lashed by the curse of drugs and which had been abandoned by the authorities, by the media, um, and um, by the mass media.
6: Ah, Los que no conocieron a Manuel creen que él se levantó un día y dijo, me voy a dedicar a investigar las drogas y nada más lejos de la verdad.
4: Those who didn't know Manuel may think that he woke up one day and simply said, "I'm going to fight drugs." Nothing could be further from the truth
6: Manuel lucha años. That struggle began
4: many years be- before.
6: No era una lucha aislada en contra de los narcotraficantes. It was not an
4: isolated fight, that is a fight only against drug traffickers.
6: Era una lucha contra todo lo que representaba una agresión en contra de nuestra comunidad.
4: It was a fight against everything that represents aggression against our community.
6: Los enemigos de Manuel de Dios eran los enemigos de toda la sociedad en general. Los narcotraficantes, los blanqueadores de dinero, los, del- los delincuentes de cuello blanco y corbata, los políticos corruptos que manipulan nuestra gente, la discriminación, etc., etc.
4: Manuel's enemies were the enemies of society in general. Drug dealers, money launderers, uh, white-collar criminals, corrupt politicians, all those and our false leaders who manipulate our community.
6: La lucha de Manuel de Dios fue de todos y para todos. Defendió las causas de los débiles Y nunca tuvo miedo de ser la voz de aquellos que temían hablar por ellos mismos
4: The struggle of Manuel de Dios was the struggle of all and for all He defended the right of the weak and he was never afraid to be the voice of those who were afraid to speak
6: out in their own defense Desde su programa radial siempre dijo lo que otros callaban por miedo, por beneficio o por compromisos. Siempre dijo lo que otros callan.
4: On his radio talk show, he always said what others were afraid to say out of fear, um beneficio. out
6: of
4: um fear of consequences or because of their own personal interests in, in certain issues.
6: Okay. Concentró su lucha en las drogas porque consideraba que esta era entre todas las cama- calamidades que sufrimos las comunidades latinas, él consideraba que las drogas eran la más grande de todas, que avanza como un cáncer sin que nadie... Haga nada para detenerla.
4: He concentrated in recent years on drugs because he considered the threat of drugs that the greatest among all of the calamities that had been visited upon our community, a kind of cancer that kept moving without any regard to what it took in its wake.
6: Para Manuel, el problema de las drogas era algo más que la oferta y la demanda, como lo deja ver en su libro mm-hmm. Los secretos del cartel de Medellín.
4: For Manuel, the problem of drugs went far beyond the simple issue of supply and demand as he states and and explores in his book, The Secrets of the Medellin Cartel.
6: Con Cambio 21, el semanario que nació hace un año, Manuel trató de dar una alternativa al lector presentando un medio independiente, sin componendas, cuyo único compromiso era la verdad y el compromiso con el lector.
4: With the weekly Cambio 21 that was born a year ago, Manuel wanted to create an alternative medium, an independent medium that owed nothing to its readers except the truth.
6: Desde su revista Crimen, que Mm. se publicó un mes antes de su asesinato, quería ofrecer al lector el tipo de reportaje investigativo que no se está haciendo en ningún medio, y menos en nuestra comunidad.
4: And with the weekly crimen, or crime,
6: Rosa Manuel sabemos que su lucha comenzó hace muchos años. That struggle began many
4: years before.
6: No era una lucha aislada en contra de los narcotraficantes.
4: It was not an isolated fight that is a fight only against drug traffickers.
6: Era una lucha contra todo lo que representaba una agresión en contra de nuestra comunidad.
4: It was a fight against everything that represents aggression against our community.
6: Los enemigos de Manuel de Dios eran los enemigos de toda la sociedad en general, los narcotraficantes, los blanqueadores de dinero, Los delincuentes de cuello blanco y corbata, los políticos corruptos que manipulan nuestra gente, la discriminación, etc., etc.
4: Manuel's enemies were the enemies of society in general. Drug dealers, money launderers, uh, white-collar criminals, corrupt politicians, all those and our false leaders who manipulate our community.
6: La lucha de Manuel de Dios fue de todos y para todos. Defendió las causas de los débiles y nunca tuvo miedo de ser la voz de aquellos que temían hablar por ellos mismos. Mm-hmm.
4: The struggle of Manuel de Dios <coughs> was the struggle of all and for all. He defended the right of the weak and he was never afraid to be the voice of those
6: who were afraid to speak out in their own defence. Siempre, por por siempre dijo lo que otros callan. On his
4: radio talk show he always said what others were afraid to say out of fear um out of um, fear of consequences or como se traduciría eso because of their own personal interests in in certain issues
6: okay. concentró su lucha en las drogas porque consideraba que esta era entre todas las cama- calamidades que sufrimos las comunidades latinas El consideraba que grande todas, cancer
4: He concentrated in recent years on drugs because considered the threat of drugs that the greatest among all of the calamities that had been visited upon our community, a kind of cancer that kept moving without any regard to what it
6: took in its wake. Para Manuel, el de las
4: For Manuel, the problem of drugs went far beyond a simple issue of supply and demand as he states and, and explores in his book The Secrets of the Medellín Cartel.
6: Con cambio 21, el semanario que nació hace un año Manuel trató de dar una alternativa al lector presentando un medio independiente sin componendas cuyo único compromiso era la verdad y el compromiso con el lector.
4: With the weekly Cambio 21 that was born a year ago, Manuel wanted to create an alternative medium, an independent medium that owed nothing
6: to its readers, accept the truth. Mm-hmm.
4: And with the weekly crimen, or Crime, that appeared in its first issue just a month before his assassination, Manuel hoped to offer readers the kind of investigative reporting, serious, truth-seeking, investigative reporting that's so sadly lacking in our media, especially in the Hispanic media.
6: Esta noche estoy acá I'm here
4: tonight because I believe that all of us have an obligation towards Manuel de Dios not just towards Manuel the man but towards the journalist
6: él murió ejerciendo su profesión y bien, dándolo todo por esa profesión
4: he died in the exercise of his profession giving everything for it
6: y siento que los medios de comunicación hasta este momento no han tomado el caso de Manuel de Dios como la muerte de un periodista.
4: And I feel that so far the media have not taken on Manuel's case as the death of a journalist.
6: Y creo que es hora de que lo tomen como que es uno de ustedes porque hoy fue Manuel, pero mañana puede ser cualquiera de ustedes. Y esto se puede convertir en un Colombia cualquiera, donde se matan periodistas todos los días, solamente por decir la verdad.
4: And I also think it's time that you understand that Manuel was killed as one of us, that is, as one of all of us. And if we don't consider his death that way, we won't be prepared for the day when other journalists here are killed right el final de la and that this if we don't draw the line here this country could soon become just another Colombia mm-hmm.
6: uh, lo último que quisiera decir es que yo creo que necesitamos Hacer toda la presión posible para resolver el asesinato de Manuel de Dios. No se puede quedar como si hubieran matado a cualquier persona. Yo creo que es el momento de decir basta a una situación que se ha ido prolongando por dos meses sin que la policía y sin que los medios de comunicación hayan puesto la presión que se necesita.
4: And I think it's important that we demand action on this case and not consider it just any death. This has to be seen as an important issue, and there has to be pressure from all of us and from the media so that this case is solved. It's taken too long, it's already been two months.
6: Por último, tengo una pregunta para los medios en inglés y aún en España. bueno, en inglés más que todo. ¿Qué ¿Hubiera pasado o qué estaría pasando en este momento si al periodista que matan es un periodista de New York Times, de Newsday, de del New York Post? ¿Qué hubiera pasado? ¿Estaríamos todavía tres meses después del asesinato sin hacer nada, sin tener un sospechoso, sin darle presión a la policía? Finally,
4: I'd like to ask you if this journalist killed had been a member of the staff of the New York Times or Newsday or the Post would the case still be unsolved would be still be standing here and saying 3 months later that there has been no progress would we take it so lightly
6: así que lo último que quiero decir es que insisto en el compromiso que tenemos ustedes yo siento yo tengo un compromiso con el trabajo de Manuel de Dios con su revista Cambio 21 y la voy a continuar se los riesgos que me corro.
4: I think we all have an obligation towards Manuel. I have an obligation to continue the work that we were doing and I intend to continue publishing our magazine Cambio 21. I know the risks that I will be running if I do so but there's no other possible course.
6: Y creo que hay riesgos en la vida que se tienen que correr y me gustaría terminar con una frase que decía Manuel que en el periodismo el periodismo se debe practicar sin miedo y sin compromiso a no ser con la verdad. Y el que tenga miedo ejerciendo esta profesión, como él decía, que se compre un perro.
4: That Manuel was fond of saying, in, there are always risks in journalism and if you're not prepared to run those risks, go out and buy a dog. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ed Vega is a short story writer and novelist, author of The Comeback, Mendoza's Dreams, and The Casualty Report. He has written columns for Newsday and is currently writing a satirical column for Latino News. Please welcome Mr. Ed Vega.
7: On behalf of the Latin American Writers Institute, on whose advisory board I serve, let me express my most profound condolences to Manuel's wife and family. He was also our brother, and his absence is immense. I only met Manuel once at a social function, so I can't speak about him. I knew of his work. I knew of his reputation. At times, I dreaded uh, having to uh, cross swords with him because of his great uh, passion. I should state that my nature is not one of a courageous person. I chose to write fiction needing to shield what I needed to say behind that form of expression, I find out that that's not also too safe, given what's going on in the world today. There's a tremendous amount of violence being directed at writers, not only journalists, but playwrights, poets, and fiction writers. I would like to go beyond the common understanding of what took place with Manel de Dios and talk a little bit about the kind of system that necessitates someone like Manuel de Dios to risk his life as he did. And I want to set up a scenario of three dealers. One, a drug dealer, high level drug dealer. The other one, a Wall Street bonds dealer and the third, a BMW dealer. And without being cynical, there's no question that when the first two, the high level drug dealer and the bonds dealer, walk into a BMW dealership, the owner of that dealership is not concerned where the money came from. It's simply concerned with the color of the BMW Does he have it in stock? What kind of accessories the customer wants? And how soon the money can be delivered in exchange for that car? We're living in a society of excess, a society which each day grows by leaps and bounds in separating most of us from the society and the production of goods. More and more we see and we're going to see cases like Los Angeles simply because all the means of communication show success, and wealth. And that wealth is not available to most of the people. The fall of, of communism has been applauded all over the free world as something that was a long time in coming. And I'm not so sure. That the alternative is capitalism, simply because it produces excesses in government, and it produces excesses in wealth. The New York Post today had a, a headline that Dan Quayle has now attacked what, I don't watch that much television. Anymore, Murphy, Murphy Brown. I don't know if Dan Quayle's mother is alive, but if she is, she sometimes must wonder if it wasn't, you know, wise to be an advocate of to be a pro choice advocate at the time she was pregnant. In a consumer-based society, the important thing is the purchasing of goods, and not the manner in which the money to purchase the goods is acquired. The amount of taxable dollars lost by the collective dealings of the underworld are minimal when compared to the revenue acquired through legal purchases with the same legal illegal money. The government of the United States, therefore, is not concerned greatly with stopping drug traffic, nor with the morality of drug dealing. In fact, Were all of a sudden, our entire society, to come to its senses, realize that drug use is not beneficial, it would put millions of people out of work. Both drug trafficking and anti-drug law enforcement are billion-dollar industries employing millions of people. These people, both the good guys and the bad guys, purchase cars, VCRs, washing machines, and TV sets. Additionally, films and television industries and most of the writers attached to the programs and motion programs and motion pictures which use drugs and violence as themes would also find themselves out of work. Less goods bought, less revenue for the government. So it's hypocritical to believe that going after simply going after drug dealers is going to solve a problem. I think if anything we should begin fully attacking the government of the United States for its excesses and for its avoidance of the true issues uh, confronting society. Please understand that I am not advocating the legalization of drugs, nor look the other way attitude towards criminal activity. What I am saying is that the system as it exists merely pays lip service to illegal activity. We need to go beyond this level and begin addressing the real ills of the society. In the past three years, we have seen the dismantling of the communist world, as I said. I am convinced that people behind the Iron Curtain will benefit eventually from their newfound freedom, but I am not yet convinced that capitalism as practiced in the West is the answer. As long as we have a system which creates unlimited privileges for a few and produces excesses of wealth thus creating an underclass that breeds despair, hopelessness, anger, and eventual violence against the self, as we have just witnessed in Los Angeles, then all of us have a responsibility to combat this through our our writing. How long can we go on tolerating excesses of wealth? Soon Los Angeles will be a memory, millions of dollars will be directed at the ghetto, some money will be well spent, most of it will not, as has happened in the past. What I believe is needed is a reexamination of how we apportion the resources of our society and how those resources can best serve our people. For had this society not produced the excesses of government in stirring up anti-Castro sentiment, perhaps Manuel de Dios Unanue would be alive today. Had the Carter White House, the CIA and the FBI not collaborated with the law enforcement agencies of Puerto Rico, perhaps Manuel de Dios Unanue would be alive today and had the society not placed such a premium on wealth and the attending ills which the lack of wealth produces leading some into a life of criminality perhaps our brother Manuel de Dios Unanue would be alive today so that what I am proposing and I think that the the biggest uh, clue that the government doesn't give a damn about drug trafficking and, and, and I really think you, you should study the situation and see that uh, as long as goods are being sold, the government is not going to do anything about it. But if, 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 if you want a, a big clue that the war on drugs is not a reality, look at the fact that in, every, in, the, in the Korean War, in the Second World War, in the Vietnam War, there were propaganda films coming out and being sponsored and being encouraged by the United States, and yet in something like uh, dr- the drug on wars, there isn't anything like that. In fact, there is a counter uh, effort in allowing uh, film after film after film to be uh, produced that leads people to, to look at, at drugs as a glamorous thing. If the government wanted to do something about it, then it would establish a film bureau in which actors, directors, writers, and producers could begin doing some work in film that would begin changing the minds of young people and therefore eliminating drugs, because drugs is something you cannot legalize, I mean you cannot legislate against people are going to want to use drugs if they feel like it but if people are taught in a different way then then things would change so i think as a writer not being a very courageous man i am going to devote the rest of my life to writing about such things as best i can i don't promise you that you know it'll be earth shaking but myself i i i mourn the loss of someone my Manuel de Dios Unano, and I stand here uh, giving my word that I will never back down from from either the government uh, excesses nor any drug trafficking or anything like that. Thank you very much.
0: Mary Gordon is one of our finest writers. She's the author of four novels. Final Payments, The Company of Women, Men and Angels, and The Other Side. She's also the writer of a collection of short stories called Temporary Shelter and a collection of brilliant essays called Good Boys and Dead Girls. Uh, she was born on Long Island, educated at Barnard, and lives in New York City. Please welcome Mary Gordon.
8: I'm really not speaking here as an individual, but in the name of a community of writers, because not to speak in response to an event like this would be to, to underscore in a very scandalous way the fragmentation and the limitations of our sense of community as writers we have to remember that one of the challenges of living in this peculiar world in which we live is that we can no longer afford to name the other as freely as we once did. And we should no longer consider it a luxury in which we wish to invest, to consider that the other is someone beyond the scope of our concern. I think what moved me to appear tonight was the notion that if Manuel de Dios had been writing in English on behalf of an English-speaking community, the literary community would have been more ready to express its outrage and to make a crossover between (coughs) writers represented by pen, that is, poets, essayists, and novelists, and the journalistic world which I think perhaps we as literary writers are too unwilling to make Siobhan told me something that, Siobhan who's a wonderful um, person who works for Penn told me something that was said to her by a journalist in Senegal this year which is she said, a very angry journalist said, when writers are jailed and killed we journalists are there to speak about it But when journalists are killed, you writers are silent. Um, And I think that we have to remember that our communities are porous, that all of us uh, are people who live by the word, that the crossover from journalism to literature has always been in an unfortunate way. In other words, it seems to me literature is getting more and more journalistic in that uh, it's more and more about who's on page six. And it would really be wonderful if the, com- if the crossover between literature and journalism were a crossover of responsibility and the kind of sense of community which is our only hope against hopelessness. It occurs to me that Manuel de Dios's courage is the only potent weapon that there is against hopelessness. What can be done about the extremely hopeless situation of the toll that drugs take on all our communities, of the hopeless situation, of the disparity in riches between the first world and the third world. It seems to me that the curse of our age is a silence and an apathy induced by hopelessness. And Manuel de Dios used courage and speech as a weapon against hopelessness And we need more and more weapons against hopelessness. And um, I think we as writers and as citizens need to expand our notion of what community and what responsibility are so that we do not end up as isolated inhabitants, speaking of ivory towers, speaking only to ourselves. It's a very great privilege for me to read a statement that Salman Rushdie to the pen office in New York about Manuel de Dios's murder. He says, The murder of Manuel de Dios provides brutal proof, if proof were needed, that freedom of speech is no mere abstraction. Writers and journalists who insist upon this freedom and see in it the world's best weapon against tyranny and corruption know also that it is a freedom which must constantly be defended or it will be lost. Those they write against, drug dealers, political tyrants, religious despots, also understand the power of free expression all too well and go to terrible lengths to suppress it. I salute the courage of Manuel de Dios and mourn his loss, and I offer his family and friends the paradoxical and bitter consolation that his assassination demonstrates the effectiveness of his campaign. To be so hated and feared by those who are themselves fearsome and hateful is a victory, a joyless victory, because Manuel de Dios is dead, but a victory nevertheless. Thank you very much.
0: Walter Mosley was born in Los Angeles in 1952 and currently lives in New York. He's the author of a series of quite extraordinary thrillers about a character named Easy Rollins that have given us access to certain parts of American life that we would not otherwise have. He has the usual training as a novelist. That is to say, he has been a potter, a computer programmer, a poet, and a student, please welcome Walter Mosley. Um,
3: I'm going to start off by apologizing about a lot of things. Number one, this is such a complex and like, emotional issue for me that I, I have to read because there's no way I can just talk about it. Um, and the emotions are interesting because I, I did not know Manuel de Dios, or Nanue. Uh, I only, like, I found out about him in the newspaper when he died, you know, like when it was on the headlines. And, and then I read about him, and then Penn <coughs> asked me to come here, as, I suppose, as a writer. And so um, I think as a writer, I want to talk not so much about, about vengeance, though I'm not against vengeance, mm-hmm. but. But you know, it's so hard to kind of figure out who like, you know, I mean, like it's listening to people who you would have vengeance against. It's a a very large world. About two years ago, there was a TV series on called, um, I don't know what it was called, but it was about (laughs) Raoul Wallenberg, who's this guy who helped save some Jews uh, during the war and subsequently died somehow, somewhere, maybe in Russia. And I didn't watch it, but... I read the TV Guide because Elie Wiesel wrote a review of it, which I thought was wonderful. I was so surprised, so I, I read this, and what Ailey had to say is that is he had a question to ask. He said, <coughs> well, you say, should I be happy about this Christ- Christian who saved Jews? And I say, is one candle enough to illuminate the darkness? It's a question that's born of despair and designed to dampen the blind optimism of people who have not experienced police truncheons, the murder of children, or most terribly, the averted eyes of those who refuse, to call, refuse the call to bear witness against unbelievable crimes. It's a brutal question, but that doesn't make, mean that it shouldn't be asked. We live in a world of brutality, a world where politicians are expected to lie, and those who dare to tell the truth are taking their lives in their hands, a world where the media sells and celebrates criminality. And when a lone man or a lone woman stands up to counter this tide, they are sidelined, marginalized, paid off, fired, or intimidated. And if all that fails, they're killed. That's true for Malcolm X, for Martin Luther King, for Manuel de Dios, and for Raul Wallenberg. It's business as usual to assassinate or to accept assassination as a part of our political lives. And as we accept, we condone. Maybe we don't pull a trigger or sign a certificate, but we do look away or watch TV or maybe write about less controversial matters. Most of us live in darkness and perpetuate darkness in order to make less of a target of ourselves. We move to the suburbs and believe in a president who we know is lying. And still, we know that the truth is real. We know this from our experience with children. A little boy... I knew saw a big woman in a supermarket and shouted to his father, Daddy, look at that fat lady. His father was embarrassed, but he laughed to himself because he was thinking the same thing. And maybe the woman decided to go back on her diet, who knows? The truth is often painful. You have to feel pain to tell the truth. You have to feel love to tell the truth. But most of all, in this world, you have to be brave. In this world, it seems you have to be willing to die To tell the truth As a writer of fiction I am not really on the front lines Of the war against ignorance and dissolution I write my books and say a little something But if a fraction of the truth Comes out it's mixed in with a good deal Of action and adventure It's kind of entertainment Only those who seek it out are moved By whatever political and social messages I intend and other people ignore me This bothers me Sometimes I feel as if my words are merely a ruse, a pretense that I am telling the stories of my time. I think crazily that the truth must be accompanied by death, and I'm afraid to die. But I hope that when we come together on nights like this to bring all our small truths together so that they can gain volume and be heard, at the same t- and at the same time deny the media and the assassins and the politicians, I hope that with the one voice of the many, we might survive to see a world that can in turn survive the truth. Because when Mr. Wiesel asks his question, he doesn't ask it to drag us down into his unbearable pain. He's asking if that single flickering light that propelled Wallenberg is alive in you and in me. Are you enough to illuminate the darkness? The answer I have is no but I hope that I am not alone. Thank you.
0: Uh, Michael Massing is the founder of the Committee to Protect Journalists and currently sits on its board of directors. He is currently writing a book about America's drug problems to be published by Simon & Schuster and he's been a writer in New York years now at the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, The Atlantic, The Washington Post. He's former executive editor of the Columbia Journalism Review and is currently a fellow at the New York Institute for the Humanities at New York University. Please welcome Michael Massing.
9: One problem of being the uh, ninth speaker of 10 is uh, you run into the risk that people have already gone over material you were planning to do. And um, I was asked to talk on behalf of the committee about the problem journalists face in the rest of the world. But uh, both Pete and Warren Hogue uh, have already read off some of the figures I was going to to discuss. And I'm delighted you all are using the uh, committee's literature. And anybody who wants details can get our publication. (laughs) Um, Maybe I'm going to be very brief. It's been getting uh, on here. One thing I will say in my capacity as a writer about the subject of drugs is that I'm sort of dismayed to the extent to which uh, our newspapers and other uh, media have not really done the type of job I think we should be doing on the drug problem. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, Manuel's example in this case is something that that we should emulate. Largely what you get are stories um, of information leaked from um, law enforcement officers about a bust here, a sting here, uh, so many millions of dollars seized in assets and um, unfortunately in terms of what's really going on in, in these communities um, in terms of the nature of the drug trade, who's doing what to whom, uh, we really don't see very much of that. And uh, I do wish that in addition to being more aggressive in pursuing Manuel's um, murders, that we also paid more attention to the type, he work, uh, type of work he was doing. The one thing I do want to say in my capacity as uh, a board member of the Committee to Protect Journalists is to correct a misimpression that I think some of us have about The nature of journalism in this country. Uh, When uh, most of us heard about uh, Manuel's death, I think the reaction was um, about how unique and unusual an event it was. Journalists being killed in the United States. Um, I think Pete referred to uh, uh, sort of the impression most of us has is that this is very rare. But in fact, the committee, uh, this event, sent us back looking at what has happened over the years, and in fact, we found that this event is not at all unique. It's not even that rare. Last year, for instance, Fritz Doer, a Haitian radio announcer in Miami, was shot three times by an unknown assailant outside his home. Um, also in that case, there is no, nobody's been apprehended. It's still not clear what happened, but he had been threatened by Makout uh, very shortly before he was killed, and they remain leading suspects. 1990, Triet Lee, a columnist for a Vietnamese language newspaper in a Washington suburb, was shot in front of his home. The murder was allegedly ordered by the government in Hanoi. 1987, another Viet journalist in California was killed when his office was set on fire. Uh, a Croatian language broadcaster was shot in Chicago and killed that same year. 86, an anti-Marcos uh, executive at a Filipino newspaper in California was shot and killed And in 1984, a case that uh, some of you may recall, Henry Liu, a reporter for a Chinese language newspaper, uh, was killed by assassins who, it was shown, were sent by the uh, Taiwanese government. In all, we have counted that at least 15 journalists have been murdered, dating back to the most well-known case of all, that of Don Bowles in 1976. Uh, That comes to about one a year, which um, is not a very encouraging rate for the country that's considered... Uh, the uh, guarantor of press freedom around the world. Most of these journalists work for non-English newspapers, Uh, not all though. uh, Some of you may have read about the case that occurred just three weeks ago of Warren Dullier, a uh, editor and publisher of a small paper in West Virginia, who was found shot in his home. Uh, Again, very unclear what happened, but it is the case that he was writing very strong articles about the Ku Klux Klan's efforts to organize in, in his community, and the Klan was known to be very angry by all this. Um, it's a case that we are con- that we are pursuing. All these cases, basically, this, this recognition in a way, I mean, this was a surprise t- to us, uh, has caused us to change our, our modus operandi at the committee. When we were founded in 1981, we expressly limited our jurisdiction to cases outside the United States. Our reasoning was that, first of all, journalists were pretty safe here, and second of all, if anything happened, there would be marches, there would be, uh, there'd be investigations, inquiries, there'd be other organizations taking up the effort. Uh, unfortunately, as the Dios case indicates, uh, this is not really so. And so in response, the committee for the first time has decided it's going to look at cases in the United States the same way that it has in any other country. This is a real shift for us, and I think it is a reflection of what's happening. Sad reality is that, as the Manuel de Dios case illustrates, the hazards that we American journalists have long regarded as over there in El Salvador, South Africa, and China can now occur in Miami, Los Angeles, West Virginia, Chicago, and tragically, Queens. Thank you.
0: This brings us to Breslin, who seems to have been disappeared on his way to this meeting. This is not unusual. Jimmy and I have been friends for 30 years. He is the most thoroughly unreliable human being I know. And I remember one time about 10 years ago, Jack Newfield and Breslin were supposed to appear at the University of Indiana uh, at some huge meeting Breslin swore up until the last minute that he would be there. Newfield got to the airport, no Breslin. Newfield arrives (laughs) in Indiana, no Breslin. Newfield goes to the auditorium, no Breslin. After they introduced Newfield, the dean of the university comes forward and says, ladies and gentlemen, Jimmy Breslin will not be here. He has suffered a coronary attack and is in Queens General Hospital, which of course was a lie, he was in his kitchen. So I have no idea where he is tonight, Uh, but I'm sure he is with us in some sort of spirit. (laughs) There's only one other thing about Jimmy, is that Jimmy is among the bravest newspaper men I know, as witness what happened last year during the Crown Heights disturbances right here in Brooklyn, when he got in a taxi with a black taxi driver who knew the back way into Crown Heights. Unfortunately, it was also the back way into the riot. Jimmy was taken out of the taxi cab, beaten and stripped and standing there in his underwear in the middle of a place with not a policeman in sight fortunately some wonderful young black kid upstairs saw him down there, called the police and said the following there's a fat old white man out in the street without any clothes on (laughs) please come and get him so ever since Jimmy is known affectionately to all of us as the fat old white man wherever he is I'm glad he lent his, loaned his name to the, uh, to the proceedings. <laughs> We're going to take some questions from the audience, and if you wouldn't mind if you could use uh, the floor microphones, uh, because this is being recorded for use on nonprofit radio, which is usually WBAI. <coughs> so anybody who has questions, please ask. Yes, sir. To anyone on the panel.
10: Well, it's just a comment, you know. I was thinking as I was coming down here, you know, about the assassination and I said, why not get a SWAT team and go all through Queens and just eliminate everything? That was my first thought. <laughs> eliminate thought, everything? And get <laughs> Chase <everybody>. Stadium? Yeah. <laughs> then I thought, I said, look, we can't even protect Americans overseas that we could have years ago. And I said, why not? Let's go back to what we did years ago. We had the CIA, which had a lot of controversy, but they did a lot of good things. I think under these circumstances, we need something, an independent, somebody to act independent from the uh, president to resolve any of these crimes, whether it be to newspaper people, To uh, TV, anybody in the public that is doing good. I think we need a specialized police team, somebody that's technical and that can resolve this and will have access to all of these criminals. I think this is our only solution, and it may take years, but I don't see any other hope if we don't do it that way. I did. I fought in the Korean War. Well, we do have
0: an outfit that's independent of the president. It's called the New York Police Department, and I wish they'd work a little harder on this one.
11: Hi, my name is John Garcia. I'm a reporter and journalist here in New York. I'd like to reiterate what Mr. Massing said, and I don't mean to attack Mr. Hogue because he's not here, but he's incorrect when he says that all we can do is come together and testify what he could do is get his newspaper off their fat ass and report on what's going on, what's going on, exactly what Mr. Massing said. The newspapers in this city, and I don't mean to single them out, I single out uh, Rosada Station and whoever else is here, NPR and whoever else is here, to get up and report on the drug trade, the crime that's going on in these cities. Vicky will tell you that you don't need to have great sources. Just step out on the street and Northern Boulevard, step out on the street. It's happening right here on the corner. And what do we do? We concentrate on the Medellin cartel and some other people who we really don't even know who they are instead of concentrating on what's going on in our neighborhoods. What we need to do is cover those areas, take care of those areas, and stop saying, let's get together and let's testify. Well, I'd like to urge Mr. Hogan, whoever else is here from the media, to please cover our neighborhoods, write about our our communities. We have crime in our communities. You don't need to have sources. Just step out into the street. You see where the drug dealers are. That's what happened to Manuel de Dios, and that's why he got it.
0: Thank you. I do think, by the way, that uh, people who are interested should write to Dinkins and to Brown trying to force the government to do something about this, in addition to what you just said. I think the press has not covered this very well at all. Yes, sir? Uh, primeramente I like uh quería saludar a la
12: Vicky Sánchez una persona de la verdad sin compromiso al contrario de la línea oficial de mentiras y también de la gente oprimida.
11: Paper off their fat ass and report on what's going on, what's going on exactly what Mr. Massing said. The newspapers in this city, and I don't mean to single them out, I single out uh, Rosada Station and whoever else is here, NPR and whoever else is here, to get up and report on the drug trade, the crime that's going on in these cities. Vicky will tell you that you don't need to have great sources. Just step out on the street and Northern Boulevard, step out on the street. It's happening right here on the corner. And what do we do? We concentrate on the Medellin cartel and some other people who we really don't even know who they are, instead of concentrating on what's going on in our neighborhoods. What we need to do is cover those areas, take care of those areas, and stop saying, let's get together and let's testify. Well, I'd like to urge Mr. Hogan, whoever else is here from the media, to please cover our neighborhoods, write about our our communities. We have crime in our communities. You don't need to have sources. Just step out into the street, you see where the drug dealers are. That's what happened to Manuel de Dios, and that's why he got it.
0: Thank you. I do think, by the way, that uh, people who are interested should write to Dinkins and to Brown, trying to force the government to do something about this. In addition to th- what you just said, I think the press has not covered this very well at all. Yes, sir. Uh, I,
12: like uh, compañero Vicky Sanchez, una persona de la verdad. In compromiso, al contrario de la línea oficial de mentiras y también de la In English, I just want to say that I was saluting uh, Vicky Sanchez for being an uncompromising person for the truth and uh, un- contrary to the official line of, the, of lies that's been coming out lately. And uh, my question would be more like, if Manuel de Dios was still around, um, how would he have reported on the L.A. rebellion? Uh, and uh, also in the middle of what's going on in Peru right now with the the assassination of uh, and massacre of uh, Peruvian political prisoners and assassination of La Lavera how would he report on the um, on on the what's going on in Peru also Necessary para preguntarlo en, en español?
2: No, no, oh, no. So, okay. it, it's hard to say how manuel would have covered the story manuel is not here but i'm um in his style and, and the way that we worked at el diario um manuel would have brought l.a home manuel would have been writing about not can l.a happen here but l.a is about to happen here and what are we going to do about it are we prepared for it Manuel would be writing uh would be criticizing, you know, from Dinkins up and down in terms of um what's happening in the city right now with our youth and and all of the stuff that w- is contributing to what many people believe um will be LA and New York sometime this summer. Um in terms of the uh, her political activities in Peru, I, I'm not really prepared to answer that.
6: Le quisiera agregar a usted que si Manuel estuviese en este momento, diría, como me dijo una persona que llamó para darme las condolencias, lo que ha pasado en Los Ángeles, Manuel de Dios lo ha venido diciendo en todos sus editoriales, lo ha venido diciendo en lo que otros callan. Esto es una bomba de tiempo que ahora fue en Los Ángeles, pero mañana puede ser aquí porque estamos llenos de racismo Porque a pesar de que tratamos de ocultarlo, todas nuestras ciudades están llenas de racismo. Así que lo de Los Ángeles es algo que Manuel predijo hace mucho tiempo.:
2: tra- um, um, Vicky said that what Manuel would be saying about L.A. is that he, he, he actually said, and he would be uh, bragging about the fact that he predicted L.A, because for many years he's been talking about the time bomb. That is about to explode in many of our cities, and he belie- and he believed that it was all due to the rampant raz- racism that exists um, in our communities and uh, throughout the country.
4: Well, it's easier to speak to the question about LA since Manuel's first concern was always here, what's happening in our country, and um, I think too that he would have spoken about Los Angeles with a sense of outrage that we have about his death. is something that people only see what's going to pieces in this country when it explodes. But Manuel would have said, our youth are all exploding. The riot is every day. The riot is in the schools. It's not just when you see it on your TV screen over dinner. And he would have, the news for Manuel had to be interpreted, events had to be interpreted, but they always came back to the fundamental issues of injustice. And he would have asked, why do you have to see it writ so large before you see it?
5: I believe that with his experience with the police, uh, Manuel would have known what to expect from the police, but he would be criticizing what the jury did in the case because he knows and we should know what the police enforcement is, is all about. And uh, the, he would be discussing the reason why <coughs> the case was switched from Los Angeles to some place out of Los Angeles because whoever was responsible for the changes know that the perspective of those jurors in terms of the cops uh, was different uh, then what would the jurors from Los Angeles have about uh, uh, police?
0: Uh, incidentally, um, anybody who would like to help in the process of continuing Cambio uh, should see Vicky Sanchez after this meeting. And If you have money to pledge or help or of any kind, uh, just see her and she would gladly accept such help. Yes, ma'am.
13: Um, My name is Maria Hinojosa, and I am with NPR, and the story is going to be on tomorrow night, finally. Um, This is a very complex case, and I think I want to pick up on just to make a very brief comment um, regarding the, the situation with Los Angeles that I was commenting to Vicky. So many news media kind of went into a panic when Los Angeles occurred because they realized that they didn't have any reporters of color out there. And so therefore they had to scramble up and find out find wherever their reporters of color were and get them to LA. And it to me it was a fundamental it sort of crystallized the whole problem. It's because we don't have those voices everywhere that we cannot hear the stories that need to be heard from those places. And fundamentally with the situation with Manuel de Dios, I feel like and, and as Vicky was saying, Jackson Heights is like another, another country as far as the New York Times is concerned, or many of the other newspapers here. And it's because they don't have reporters from those communities who understand those communities, who are part, an integral part of those communities, reporting for them that a story like Manuel de Dioses gets dropped because they don't have the reporter who can go in there and talk to the people and be one, of, be one of them without kind of standing out like, uh-oh, here comes the reporter and everybody disappears, so as to not answer any questions. So I think along with the very needed pressure that all of you here as writers and, and activists, et cetera, can have by calling the police, by calling the news media over, even if it's a call a day, it has a tremendous impact. This is something that if the people really begin to feel the pressure, that it's a thorn in their side, they will be forced to move on it. And I can't help but, but keep the, the, um, the voice of, of Vicky saying, what if this had been somebody else? What if this had been a <laughs> white man who was killed and who was doing his job? what would be the difference? And I think we have to think about that in the context of being the other in a city where we are all now the other or we are all one.
0: I think that's true. Certainly the, the newspapers are not reflecting the city that is. They're reflecting either the city that mm-hmm. used to be or the city they wish it was, but they're not reflecting the city as it is, which is a much more interesting, rich, <laughs> vibrant city than they, than the one that's reported upon. I, I wish there were more, not just minority uh, journalists, but I wish more Anglos would learn Spanish, that there were more Asians covering this place, that people look up one morning and there's 75,000 Haitians on the Brooklyn Bridge and they say, where the hell did these guys all come from? and they don't know what it is. One day they look up and two-thirds of the cab drivers are from Pakistan and they don't know when they arrived. And I think it's just a failure to truly cover the city as it is. Now, in that sense, I think the, the papers really have locked themselves into a kind of shape and a form that no longer is applicable to the city as it really is. I wish they would do better. Yes, sir.
14: Hi, my name is Mike Weber. I'm an investigative reporter. Um, When Don Bowles died in 1976, the way investigative reporters dealt with it is to develop a project that went out to Arizona with reporters from a multitude of newspapers, not just from Arizona, but from around the country, to take up the work of Don Bowles a non-white journalist has died, and that thought drops like a stone. It's time that people begin to think about how to develop ways to push the media in this city and the media in the country to take up the work of journalists who are killed, because if a killer knows that when one is killed, 10 more takes his place or her place, then there will be no more killings. Thank you.
0: Yes, ma'am.
15: I was just wondering if there there were, since 1980, a lot of things have changed in the effort to integrate the news media and get more minority people there very abruptly when Ronald Reagan went into office and uh, deregulation set in. And I wondered if any of you had any other thoughts on that. For instance, uh, the television news media really dominates everything and it's wha- it doesn't have any local news at all. It just has whatever the police wanted, one-syllable crime reports. Uh, which really do, I mean it's shocking that we have no real local news now except in those pa- papers which tends to squeeze everything down and I just wondered also there's been a lot of intimidation of the press and investigative groups for instance recently in the uh, the investigation into the um, uh, the leak the Anita Hill hearing leak mm-hmm. um, and Peter Fleming the Council to the Senate committee had been going around intimidating everybody, right and left. And I just wondered if anyone had any thoughts about how that, you know, this played into these this kind of murderous intimidation that now seems to be happening <coughs> to the press.
5: I have one comment. Uh, in 1970, I became the first uh, regular Hispanic columnist for a major English-language newspaper in New York. Today, we have one Hispanic uh, writing a regular column for a major English-language newspaper, Juan González. So we have not improved too much in that respect. As far as the written media is concerned, I don't know about radio and television.
7: I I, I want to tell you something uh, that will probably... Uh, not gain me any friends at Newsday. Uh, Someone at Newsday decided that the Latino community was growing and they should have uh, columnists. So they came up with uh, an idea to begin trying out different writers. And I think Jose wrote a piece and I wrote a piece and somebody else wrote a piece in the the op-ed page. And then they came up with the bright idea of having something called Latino Lens, it's kind of a curious name for a column. But anyway, they began piecing this out at a very, very, you know, I'm not gonna tell you the money because it was, it's so demeaning. Uh, at one point they said to me, we would like you to write uh, the column every other week and I said, fine, but you gotta, you know, pay me to do this, because as much as I love doing it, you're not paying me Microphone from Newsday. <laughs> from hell. <laughs> but, anyway, but anyway, I said, you first you have to pay more money, first, second, you have to give me more space, and third, you have to, you know, provide uh, you know, another name for this because it sounds ridiculous to me. And uh, they said, well, should we deal with you or should we deal with your agent? And I said, deal with my agent. And I thought I made a reasonable um, offer. I would do this for a certain amount of money. And they said, absolutely not. We don't pay our columnists that much. And I know for a fact that, you know, there are columnists... You know, writing for this newspaper that get paid, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, so a Latino columnist is not welcome, and I don't think any newspaper uh, wants to hear the truth about our community. They do not want to spend the money. I told one of the people there, "Look, all you need to do in order to pay me is sell 1,500 newspapers." And you sell 1,500 of this you know, newspaper every day in my neighborhood. So why can't you come up with the money? And they said, oh, we can't, you know. an incredible runaround. So I don't see any hope. And I really think the more we focus on the drugs, as it is, the less results we're gonna get. Unless we start going after the, the hypocrisy of this government. Vis-a-vis, it's underclass. We're not going to get anywhere. Drugs, drugs are going to proliferate. You're going to have not only in L.A., but many, 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 many L.A.s because people are tired. Yes, sir.
16: Yeah, I just wanted to say that the, the Bush administration has a, a very curious way of, uh, of explaining you know, the crisis uh, at L.A. They blame it on an unwed mother. Uh, and I, I find that very curious, but I, I th- what I find very pathetic, though, is the way that the American press has, has treated uh, you know, the death, and that's primarily by ignoring it.
0: H- has created the what?
16: I said that I find <laughs> it pathetic that the press has treated uh, the death of this journalist. Uh, well, the treatment is tragic, far more tra- tragic than Mr. Quayle's remark the other day and that is by ignoring it. Um, the problem is, and I think the, the name of the column that Mr. Vega was writing under, The Latino Lens, is an interesting title because it says that this is the way that this community views it. Well, the community that's writing the papers, the community that's editing the paper, sees nothing because they're not from the community primarily. And I just wanted to maybe get Mr. Vega to respond to that and Anybody else who would care to? I'm
7: trying to get in more trouble. I don't want to... <laughs>
0: <Anybody else? laughs> well, I think there's always this problem of of how to cover the city, and just as generals always fight the last war, editors usually cover the last city that existed. If you look at the newspapers at the turn of the century, they did not know how to cover the Eastern European Jews. They certainly never got around to it covering the Italian Amer- Italians and the Italian-Americans, uh, because they didn't see them. It was exactly that question of the other that Mary Gordon speaks, speaks about. And the whole problem, I think, with journalism is that it's gotten even worse than when I broke in in terms of its short-term memory. It's almost all present tense now. There's no sense of the past. There's no sense of how things got that way. There's no interest in learning it. And one reason is that you have the first generation of editors who grew up with television, the first generation of Mm -hmm. reporters who grew up with television. They've been shaped and fashioned by television, which is a kind of electronic sushi that has to be consumed immediately and then is gone. (laughs) I think that question of what journalism has to become, if it's going to have any kind of role in the future of the city, is crucial. I don't think it's particularly... Germain to what Manuel de Dios was doing, except in the sense that he was in the alternative press that still does not have enough honor in this city. If you go to a a city like Miami, you'll see that the Miami Herald has responded in a noble way to the changes in the demographics of Dade County. They have a very strong newspaper, a Spanish-language version of their own newspaper now called El Herald, uh, that often has more advertising than the main paper, and that is so such a good newspaper that the crazy right-wing Cuban exiles are trying to burn it to the ground. They're running a campaign to try to destroy the, the Miami Herald right now because it is doing a good job. Uh, we're not even close to the sophistication of what the Herald has been doing in Miami, and it's very difficult with three newspapers in severe financial problems because the city's in financial problems. For those three papers to even think about what they're going to do in the fall. The Daily News can't think beyond the Democratic Convention. The Post, for obviously good reasons, they don't know if they're going to be here. Uh, I think the Post has something of the same problem but not as severe. Uh, Newsday has to worry about whether or not the Los Angeles Times, which is itself in a lot of trouble, will eventually pull the plug on its New York edition. If that happens then there's no hope at all. We'll be totally impoverished. We'll be a one newspaper town in which there'll be more reporters in Washington covering the White House than there will be in Queens. We can't do that, and that's why I hope that we can get through this next year or two, that some of the financial institutions survive long enough. A lot of the question of whether the Post or the News will survive has much more to do with whether Macy survives than whether or not they hire a good columnist of some kind. It's going to be about the financial future of this city. If we turn into another tundra like Detroit, uh, then the newspapers are all gonna go down with it and nobody will even miss them. It'll be such a horror. I think that newspapers really must lead the way to the future, Uh. and that they're not doing a particularly adequate job of that right now.
4: I would like to say one thing. Sure. Well, I hadn't heard this name of Latino Lens, but I think it's actually fascinating attempt on the part of New State to uh, both, or not attempt, but let's say expression of concern and at the same time marginalization. It's a very silly title and I think it's honorable to refuse to take part in it because it once again uh, hides the fact that any newspaper is written through at least a lens and that lens should be identified. But I think that what really comes out of this whole discussion and what might be in some way a tribute to Manuel if we can come out of here with something to do next is the notion that our vision, the vision that's coming to us through our media is through a squint and that until we see with both eyes we're going to be having different people looking through one lens, other people looking through another. And in fact that is exactly the sort of thing that leads to riots.
0: Well said. Thank you all for coming. Oh wait a
1: minute!
17: Oh,
0: oh, sorry. One more question, and then we gotta. Oh, okay. Then they throw us out.
17: Hi, I live in Jackson Heights, and where a residential area is, it's beautiful. There's still trees and gardens, but the traffic area is terrible. Every night, you can see on every corner, like on Roosevelt Avenue, young men, pregnant young women, young girls selling drugs and when once I went to the community meeting where they said police department will be there from our stri- district, I mentioned that, and he says, really? When you see that, please call us, and report, we will go there. I said, I'm sorry, officer, I'm telling you that this is very obvious. They are offering me, I just passed by. And all, I never saw you enough there, and if I see enough people in the car, police car, they just passed by, and he kept insisting, but strange, we always check on that, please do that, that's why we're here, citizens and neighborhood <laughs> people, to call us and so on. After the meeting, I press the police officer, say, it looks like we didn't have communication, I'm telling you, it's very obvious, it's every night, and I never see you there. He says, well, for one, I have to tell you the truth, what can you do, there are two little drug dealers, you take them to police, wherever, and then they'll be released, so it doesn't even pay to do that to take them. They're very quickly released after they've been taken. So it looks like the two small dealers are nuisance and doesn't pay to do anything about them and the two big dealers, and Mr. Vega says, are too profitable for the country and we're in a mess. The country will get rid of the the drugs only if the whole society, the masses, take action, not little by little. But the masses can be taken only, uh, take this action if the leadership, encouraging us in helping us in doing that. And if Bush would, instead of saying over there, over here, over there and down there, says over here we have problem. And if he, the leadership, is the most important thing. And only if the government and leadership teach us how and help us, only then we can get rid of the drugs. And I have a small awesome. question about the killing of uh, Manuel Darius. I wasn't here from the beginning. Was he killed just in the rage? As with uh, King, uh, Mr. King in uh, Los Angeles, or they were ordered to be uh, to kill him or something. anybody knows that?
0: Well, it was an obviously very professional job of of killing. So it was like. So it was not uh, two people arguing over a parking spot, which is our run of run of the mill murder in New York. This was obviously a planned uh, killing. Somebody who knew his habit, knew his movements, went in, did it, and left. Uh, It was obviously a professional job. Who did it, nobody quite can figure out so far. The other problem you're talking about, by the way, about the police with the drugs on the street goes back to the early years of the Koch administration when an administrative decision was made in the police department not to allow the cop on the beat to get himself involved in drug stuff on the street because there was a fear of corruption which is pretty hilarious because about every year and a half they lock up five guys from Suffolk County who are in the police department peddling drugs in the city of New York. So one thing that that mystifies me is why they don't revoke that departmental role and put every guy with a badge uh, to work uh, getting drug dealers off the street to at least show to people in the neighborhoods that they're doing something. They still haven't gotten around to that. Although the long run, you're never going to do it until we figure out why millions of Americans want to shove stuff up their noses and get high. You know, I I once talked to a Mexican diplomat about this problem and he said to me, look, if American yuppies decided to shove bananas up their noses to get high, Mexico would go blooming with bananas. Because poor countries, the question is not Medellin or Cali, the question is what is the sickness in Americans that makes them want to get wrecked every day in large numbers? Because that's where the heart of it is. That's why wars on drugs and all that, waste of time.
17: But you know, if I started pressing more the police department in my neighborhood, and I'm telling them you're not doing the work, maybe I would become a target. No, those but you, know, no, you wouldn't. What
0: they do is they lock up a few guys, send them to jail where they do drugs. They'd sit in the can doing drugs in jail, and when they get out, they'd be better drug dealers because they'd have become more refined at the process of. Being drug dealers—that's not more cops and more jails aren't going to do it. A massive rehab program—I'm I'm talking something that would accommodate millions and millions of people who are wrecked on drugs and alcohol—is the only way to solve a lot of this. Problem. We don't want to do done? it.
17: How can that be done? Who can? You're first, to get rid
0: of the right-wing yeah. people who've run the country for the last Federal 12 leadership. years, <laughs> who think the jails are the solution. Thank you. Well, do we have time for one? No. 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 We we'll talk afterwards, all right? Okay. They they're going to lock us throw us out here. Thank you all very much.